Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth. And before we get into this week's B-side, some quick housekeeping up top. We are prepping a mailbag episode, as I've mentioned on past shows. So please send us your questions in the form of a voice note, or it can be written to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. This can be anything related to the show, related to rankings, related to pop music in general. We want to hear from you guys what you think, what you want to know about, what you'd like me to speak about. So send us your questions. We're going to put that on a deadline so get them in soon i also want to announce that my party gorgeous gorgeous is back for another round on september 23rd that's a friday in downtown los angeles at resident this is a pop music party for queers and their allies and friends it's super fun i know many of you have been to it before and we're having our fifth installment we made it to the fifth party which is amazing so please come out the ticket link for that will be in the show notes of this episode and i will also post it on social media so hope to see you at gorgeous gorgeous on september 23rd at resident in downtown los angeles another extremely exciting announcement we have our first piece of merch i know people have been asking about merch we finally got it done it is a dad hat baseball hat and it says niche legend it's black and it has pink writing and i just felt like we're all niche legends in our own ways and so this was a term that can both apply to this podcast and also apply to all of you beautiful people who want to wear the hat and it's really cute i've been wearing it around for the last few weeks i am the sole owner of it until today because now it is available and i hope if if you like the concept, you'll go out and buy it. It's available on our website, which is poppantheonpod.com. There is a shop button there where you can go and purchase the hat. And I'm also going to put the link to buy it in the show notes. And I'm also going to post it on social media. So I really hope some of you go out and buy the hat. We have merch. I can't believe it. It feels like a big official step into becoming a real grown-up podcast. So check out our new hat. I'm really excited about it. Of course, as always, please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you listen to podcasts. Please follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on both Instagram and Twitter. Jump in our Discord. The link for that is in the show notes and I will also post on social media. Check out the Spotify playlist for this in every episode in the show notes of the episode and on social media. And that's it for the housekeeping this week. We're doing a B-side on a genre that has come up obviously numerous times on the podcast. It's one of Pop's most significant subgenres, both in its original form and in all the ways it's been brought back to life throughout the last 40 years, especially in the last few years, which has been home to a great disco revival. So this podcast is about disco. It's about the history of disco. It's about what disco means as a term. It's what disco means as music. It's what disco means as a culture. We get into the history of its roots as a black and queer musical form. We talk about what the disco diva has meant and how it generated the trope of the pop diva, essentially, as we think about it today in the modern context. So I invited the chair of the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at New York University, Jason King, to come on. He's a disco expert and just an all-around really, really smart guy. And he laid out a lot of the history and a lot of the facets of disco that are going to help us all gain a richer understanding 
understanding of the genre that's a really important part of pop music and of this podcast. And it was really fun to get to talk to him because I got rejected from the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music. So I wish I could go back and tell my deeply disappointed 18-year-old self that one day I would have this opportunity. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the wonderful Jason King. Okay, so I am here with the chair of the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music, Jason King. Jason, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We're thrilled to have you to talk about a subject that comes up a lot on our show, As you might know, this podcast is primarily devoted to exploring in depth the careers of pop stars, contextualizing them with one another, contextualizing them in the broader pop landscape, historically, et cetera, et cetera. So disco as a genre is something that comes up so much on the show because we talk about artists from the disco era, but we also often are talking about the way that both artists from the disco era, the ethos of the disco era, and disco music has influenced so much of what's come after it in the pop landscape. So I thought it would be really useful to have you on the show today to explain what exactly it is, because I think it's a term that most people know, they have associations with, they vaguely understand what we're talking about when we say the word disco, but I think it would be good for people to get a more under the surface, under the just thought of Diana Ross singing I'm Coming Out or someone walking into Studio 54 on a horse or the disco demolition night, the few like kind of broad stroke things that people know to really get an in-depth understanding of that. So that's why I'm so glad to have you here on the show. You're a disco expert as far as I know. I'm happy to be called a disco expert. That that sounds good. I mean, it's music <laughs> that I grew up on um, and it's music that I really love and obviously the way that it's come back into the culture. I mean, I don't think it ever went away, but the way that it's come back right. into the culture um, really is a reminder of how important and influential this genre of music has always been. Absolutely. It's really fascinating to watch the way that it just continues to be one of the main pop subgenres that we love to bring back again and again and again. I feel like I'm constantly either dealing with the fact that like we're in a disco revival or we just had a disco revival or there's another disco revival on the horizon. Feels like that is one of the most recurrent pop subgenres that we have in the pop firmament. So I guess my first question that I'd love to ask you, and it may seem broad and it may seem benign, but I think it's worth saying, what is disco? As far as a culture, as far as a musical form, as far as an aesthetic, if you had to just describe what the word means, what does disco mean? Well, if you look at the etymology of the word, so disco stands for discotheque. And so that's a French kind of coined word that basically means a record library because bibliotheque mm-hmm. in French means library. So discotheque is a, is a record library, library vinyl records. So the word discotheque sprang up because it was related to nightclubs in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. They were all called discotheques. And basically in those nightclubs, you had DJs spinning records in the club. And that's how the music in the club was being heard instead of live musicians. Typically, you go to a club, you hear live musicians play and you go home. This was a radical invention to have DJ spinning records. So all of these nightclub innovations in discotheques continued in the 1960s, the 1970s, especially in places like New York. But by the mid-1970s, disco became the name of a musical genre and a musical culture. And I think that's how we should think of it. It's a genre. It's a culture. The great writer Amir Baraka would call disco or funk or soul. These are personas of black music. I love that term Mm. as well. So disco is a kind of persona of black music. And I think of it as really an evolutionary development in black popular music 
culture. So it's an evolution of soul, which is that late 50s gospel-inspired R&B music, Ray Charles, Sam Cooke. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Then funk music in the 1960s, which was a harder edge soul, more percussive, more militant, more groove-based, spearheaded by artists like James Brown and Sly and the Family Stone and George Clinton and The Temptations and Norman Whitfield. And disco follows funk music. And disco in the mid-1970s, late-1970s, becomes the most popular music in America, in, in mm -hmm. the world, really. And as mm -hmm. we just mentioned, it remains really highly influential until this moment. But its peak is very short. It's like 1975, 76, 77, all the way up until 1979, and that's about it. So it really burned really hot for a very short amount of time, but its influence is still felt to this day. So in terms of the different components, maybe we should take them one at a time. What is disco's musical aesthetic? What are the tenets of a song that we can listen to and say, that's a disco song? What allows us to denote that? So I think here's the ways you can tell it's a disco song. And you have to remember that disco is not a monolith, right? There's many different right. types of disco and different sure. styles and moods and so on. But just to be reductive about it for one second, <laughs> if you, I will if you happily, mind. <laughs> happily be reductive about it. Yeah. So here's how you can tell it's a disco song. So you've got an incredible incredible complex rhythm section, right? So uh, disco mm -hmm. records are some of the best dance music ever made. And part of that rhythm sure. section, at the core of that rhythm section, is this four in the floor beat, this up-tempo, 120 beat per minute or more kind of steady bass drum beat where every single beat in the bar is accentuated, right? So it's this hard mm -hmm. pounding dance floor sound. So boom, boom, mm -hmm. boom, boom, boom. And you also, in terms of the percussion, you have this open kind of hi-hat percussion that's happening on offbeats, which has been described as a kind of hissing sound. So, right, mixed with that four in the floor beat. And then usually you'll have that four in the floor be kind of augmented by Latin polyrhythm. So congas, bongos, when you listen to songs like Turn the Beat Around or Standing Right There by Melba Moore. I mean, the percussive section is straight out of Latin America, right? Yes. And disco has all these long instrumental breaks designed to show off those percussive moments. The mm. four in the floor beats, you know, when the instruments fall out and you just hear the bass and the drum and the percussion. So there's that, there's the bass. So disco bass is something very, very unique. It was these octave leaping syncopated bass note patterns. So boom, 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 right? That would be repeating over and over in disco songs. So if you think of a song like mm -hmm. Boogie Oogie Oogie or You sure. Make Me Feel Mighty Real by Sylvester, just mm -hmm. listen to what's going on in the bass. And you're going to hear these octave leaping bass sounds. Yeah. 
The guitar is doing this chicken scratch kind of chucking sound. You'll hear this on classic Chic albums. Now Roger's playing the guitar. You'll hear that also all the way up to his playing on in songs like Get Lucky, Daft Punk, right? Which are, you know, kind of neo-disco. Yeah. Or but Cuff It on the new Beyonce record. Cuff It on the new Beyonce, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's what he's doing. He's doing that famous chucking chicken scratch guitar sound that he helped invent. I feel like falling in love. Disco is also highly arranged, so strings, string sections, horns. I mean, disco is one of those genres where you had arrangers, right, and orchestrators working on tracks. And then at the forefront, these pyrotechnical vocals. So. Think of Gloria Gaynor or Donna Summer or Martha Wash or Lolita Holloway or Thelma Houston. Disco was a vehicle, a platform for black women who could provide this kind of vocal excellence. And the final thing I'll say that is part of this disco recipe are inspirational, optimistic, kind of freewheeling lyrics. So think of the lyrics to I'm Every Woman by Shaka Khan or Ain't No Stopping mm. Us Now by McFadden and Whitehead or Don't Leave Me mm. This Way by Thelma Houston. These were lyrics you could go to a dance floor and just have this like transcendent moment because you felt uplifted, you felt affirmed, you felt authentic on the dance floor. So in thinking about that transcendence and about that dance floor oriented musical structure. Is it safe to say that disco is the first time in modern American popular music where dancing was the primary motivating engine behind the music? I guess what I'm trying to get at here a little bit is that disco was, as you got at, fastly beloved and then quickly dismissed because of, on a deeper level, racism, homophobia, etc. But on a surface level was sort of maligned as frivolous and as meaningless and vapid and lacking in classic rock values, you know, lacking in sort of poetic values, whatever the things were that we valorized about popular music in the 60s and the early 70s. Is that a correct characterization or is there other periods you can think of that disco is drawing on where dance music is the central focus or locus of popular music at a given moment? Yeah, no, I think there's been a lot of moments in the history of popular music preceding disco that are dance focused, right? There's lots of moments Mm -hmm. in jazz. I mean, funk music, I think, was also very much, you know, a kind of body oriented dance music. Mm -hmm. But disco formed around the discotheque. It formed around the nightclubs, right? And so this was a music that you sure you could listen to it at home, but it was primarily about going to a space with other people, a discotheque where you could hear it with other people. And then there are all these, of course, technological inventions, you know, around disco. So the invention of 12 inch singles, 
for instance, you know, as opposed to 45. So 45s were a shorter playing format where songs would be three minutes. And then the 12-inch was invented, which is a much longer playing format. And so suddenly music could be stretched out. It could be elongated. And so all Mm. of a sudden, dancers on a dance floor, you know, wanted a 15-minute track so that there was no moment of kind of release of the ecstasy that would happen on a dance floor. And so disco Mm. was central to that. Uh, Yeah, disco is oriented around dancing, but I think that this notion that disco is somehow more frivolous or less serious because it involves dancing is just like a crazy notion. (laughs) Yes, of course, of course. Disco, you know, it could be weird. It could be strange. It could be silly. It could Mm. be serious. It could be transcendent. It could be all of those Mm -hmm. things. It wasn't just one Mm -hmm. thing or the other. Absolutely. I mean, the word that keeps coming to mind in terms of the way you're talking about the length of the songs and the sort of aesthetic values of this music is extravagance. I think about sort of like maximalism, extravagance, details, numerous layers of rhythms and sections of music and the singers going to the hilt. So does that give us a window into what disco means as a culture? I mean, you've been talking about kind of the 360 degree notion of disco as both something that you listen to, but something that you need to listen to perhaps in a particular corporal state or physical space or whatever it is. Is Is there a culture we can lay out for disco? What did disco mean in a broader sense as a culture, I guess, is my question. Yeah, so, so, you know, we've been talking about disco as music, but disco, like all music, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Disco emerged out of a very specific cultural context, and that cultural context is that it came out of this underground subculture that eventually went overground. So disco, in its earliest stages in the early 1970s, 72, 73, 74, even 75, 76, this was music that was underground, that came from, was rooted in and was played for black and Latino working class and and poor communities and queer communities specifically coming Mm -hmm. from major urban centers like New York, where a lot of the early disco innovations kind of congealed, um, but also Miami, uh, San Francisco. And the audience that sustained disco it was LGBTQ audiences, right, mm-hmm. and 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 consumers. So you would hear this music in gay nightclubs, often in communities of color, mm-hmm. in its earliest forms. Uh, clubs like the Sanctuary or Crisco Disco, and then of course everyone knows Studio Fifty Four or Paradise Garage. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about the context, I mean, disco music was the soundtrack to gay pride and liberation. You have to remember Stonewall happens in 1969. That's considered to be the birth of modern gay liberation. And disco is a kind of correlate to the movements that are happening socially and politically around gay freedom, Mm -hmm. gay and trans freedom. So Mm -hmm. this was an incredible moment for LGBTQ communities to come together around a music and around a culture. And, you know, soon, (laughs) right after that, it became extremely mainstream, right? It became co-opted and all kinds of people who had nothing to do with the original spirit, intention, or, you know, even location of disco started getting into it. And, you know, we could talk about all of that. But I I also just want to say disco, besides being a community-oriented, grassroots music in its earliest stages, you know, it also had this other culture around it, which we just talked about, like dancing, the hustle, Mm -hmm. the electric Mm -hmm. slide. Mm -hmm. But like, think of disco balls and the fabulousness of dressing up and Mm -hmm. going out on the town to Mm -hmm. a disco, platform shoes and bell bottoms and all of this decadence (laughs) and opulence, what you were just saying, extravagance and Mm -hmm. sexual adventurousness and Mm -hmm. promiscuity. It was all connected to what was happening in the late 1960s and early 1970s in terms of this opening up of culture 
culture, the sense of needing to escape from all that was happening at that time mm. into the dance floor is where you could experience this ecstasy and transcendence. I'm fascinated thinking about it as a contrast to the self-serious Bob Dylan-esque Woodstock era rock music where people were confronting societal change by going like directly into it and this almost represents like an opposite impulse where it's like, again, not to demean the depth of disco, but the release that we need. I mean, I, I can't help but start thinking about what Beyonce has been doing with this recent record, which obviously is paying homage to disco in a lot of ways and is serving a similar function where she's, I think, in her Machiavellian Beyonce way going, what do people need right now? And it's not lemonade. It's this dance floor escape kind of thing. And I think she's obviously building that off of a lot of the ethos that were formed in the disco era. So what is the big boom moment as far as you see it in terms of disco taking center stage in broader popular music? When does that happen? So it's hard to kind of pinpoint that moment in which disco takes center stage. I mean, there's been a lot of debate back and forth. And I think it's generally just hard to pinpoint the beginning of any musical genre because there's always these proto movements that happen. But I think if you're looking at the late 1960s and early 1970s, you have to look at what was happening in Philadelphia soul music. So Mm -hmm the music that was coming out of labels like Philly International, spearheaded by you know musicians, songwriters, producers, entrepreneurs, Gamble and Huff and others, and also the New York soul scene at that time, because some of those funk records were becoming more opulent, more lavish, more percussion, mm-hmm. string sections, and these incredible grooves and that four in the floor pattern, you'd start to hear it in early records coming out of Philly and New York. A record that comes to mind is Girl, You Need a Change of Mind by mm-hmm. Eddie Kendricks, formerly of The Temptations, that came out in summer of 1972. And it's got this whole disco kind of breakdown at the end. This is pre-disco, right? But right. it has this sort of disco-like breakdown that happens to at the end and then there's this build up influenced by church aesthetics but they were bringing it into this dance floor music and that became a, a you know very popular song in discotheques 1973 you've got the OJ's Love Train that sounds like an early disco record they were a funk band but they were doing like disco oriented music I always think of that as a disco song. It's funny that that's controversial. I guess maybe it's not technically. I mean, it's it's a, it's considered proto-disco, but mm-hmm. it definitely sounds like a disco track. Yeah, it has all sure. of the hallmarks of disco. Mm-hmm. There's no question. And I don't think most people think of the OJs as a disco band, but they had their disco moments, right? Sure, they had, yeah, yeah, music yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's like you're looking at the early 70s as that first moment when disco really starts to appear in mainstream culture. I'd also say Soul Makosa by Manu Dibango. Oh my God, of the course. The great, unbelievable Cameroonian jazz musician who has this one-off hit in the early 70s that becomes, you know, this track that all the, like, early breakdancers are, like, grooving to in New York. Mm. Michael Jackson gets influenced by it, hearing it at Studio 54 years later, and then takes an interpolation and puts it into his track, Wanna Be Starting Something, from the Thriller album. 
Rihanna takes that and does that on her own dance song later in the 2000s. Please don't stop the music, yeah. Mm-hmm. So kind of just keeps going and just shows you how the disco influence goes on and on. But the biggest years for disco were definitely 76, 77, 78, and then 79. But 77, 78 is huge and partly because of the influence of Saturday Night Fever, which some see as the ultimate co-optation of all of this underground activity that's happening in New York and also a kind of whitening of it and the straightening of this music that had come from queer communities of color. One thing I'm interested in thinking about pre-Saturday Night Fever is the influence of Donna Summer, Giorgio Moroder, Peter Ballette, because obviously Donna Summer is a American black woman from Boston, but she represents one of the first big disco star breakthroughs by working with these German men on tracks like Love to Love You, Baby. Is that potentially a song that we could think of as a crystallizing moment, both for the music and popularity of disco and also for what the disco diva is going to be moving forward? I mean, absolutely. So I Feel Love comes out in 1977. She's obviously yeah. worked with Marauder and others on some tracks before, but I Feel Love with those incredible synthesizers sounds like an alien music. It sounds mm-hmm. like nothing else that's been released. And this is why I was saying, you know, disco isn't monolithic. There's so many different kinds of disco. The Philly Soul disco, there's the Bay Area disco of Sylvester and Patrick Cowley and right. others. There's underground New York disco. But that Donna Summer working with Georgia Moroder and Pete Bellot, that really is one of the beginnings of Euro disco, mm. right? Which was a kind of offshoot of disco that was synthesizer driven. ABBA, I would also include there as well when you listen to a track like Voulez Vu mm-hmm. by ABBA, that's like 76, that's pretty early in the genealogy. Isn't there a great debate about whether Dancing Queen of 1974, I believe, is a disco song? Yeah. That's been off-debated. Yeah. I think Dancing Queen's a little later. I think it's, I want to say 76. I, my, my dates could be completely wrong there. Yeah. But absolutely. I think there's questions of, is this disco or is this not? And I, right. even to this day, when we talk about neo-disco, right, all the new stuff that's happening in disco, it's like, is the Beyonce album truly disco or is it not? <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> These debates were happening at an earlier time where people were trying to figure out, okay, we know Barry White is disco, but is, you know, Rick D's doing disco duck. Is that really disco? Are the Bee Gees really disco? Are the village people really disco? Is Barry Manilow doing Copacabana really disco? I think it's all disco in some way, shape or form. It just demonstrates the diversity of what disco is. But I will say, going back to, you know, I feel love all of the work that Donna Summer was doing, in particular with Georgia Moroder as co-producers, where she was the performer. She was considered the queen of disco. And I think part of that was because of the absolute phenomenal quality of her voice. Mm. and also all of those great records. But she was basically like what Aretha Franklin was to late 60s soul Mm. and early 70s soul. Donna Summer was to disco. She was the zenith of all of that musical fabulousness and excellence embodied in one person. Can we talk a little bit about the disco diva as a trope and 
particularly maybe how it also pertains to and highlights Disco's relationship to the queer community that also can help us understand perhaps more broadly the pop world where divas in general and gay men in particular, but the queer community especially, has this really special bond that I feel like kind of comes to fruition fully formed in the disco era with divas like Donna Summer and Thelma Houston and eventually Diana Ross also. So can you talk about what exactly the disco diva as a trope conveys and like who some of the major representatives of that are in your mind? Sure. I mean, when we're talking about the disco diva, again, remember this is pre-MTV. Right. (laughs) It's a pre-visual culture dominating everything. Yeah. But disco provided a platform for black women who had powerful gospel influence vocals to step into center stage. Funk did as well, but funk was seen as a kind of masculine genre with James Brown and figures like that, kind of machismo. Mm -hmm. But disco is very much a queer genre of music with women at the front and center, Mm -hmm. Donna Summer, Gloria Gaynor, and then also someone like Sylvester, who is a man, but wears drag and is femme and sings in falsetto and is happy to be himself out and proud in the context of a music like that. I will also say that disco was a platform that provided an opportunity for plus size black Mm. women, right? So when you think of figures like Two Tons of Fun, which was the backing band for Sylvester, Martha Wash, and Isora Rhodes, who were heavy set women who had incredible, incredible voices. Then went on to rename themselves the Weather Girls and have a massive pop hit with its raining men. You know, you can't imagine a group called Two Tons of Fun, I think, in any (laughs) other genre than disco, where it's like celebrated. Today, that would be seen as horrific. But Mm -hmm. then it was really an opportunity to celebrate an alternative body type for Mm. women and particularly black women. And then just a few years later, you have MTV come on board and establish this very monotypical beauty ideal. So even someone like Martha Wash, who emerges out of the disco era, singing with Sylvester in the late 1970s, and then has her hits with the Weather Girls and It's Raining Men, she's singing CNC Music Factory songs in the late 1980s and singing with the Italian disco group Black Box. And in the videos for those songs in this MTV era, they literally get rid of her, right? And they replace her (laughs) with a (laughs) model to to lip sync the vocals. Famously, infamously, I guess, maybe is a better word. (laughs) Yeah, so for sure. The diva isn't specific to disco. There are divas in jazz, the torch singer, people Mm -hmm. like Billie Holiday and Edith Piaf and others. But I think historically in the music industry, the diva has been this woman who exercises her pain and Mm. her suffering in music in such a way that other people, including gay and trans and non-binary folks, that we can see ourselves represented in that suffering. And even if we're not at the front and center on stage, we use the diva as a kind of vehicle to Mm. experience that suffering and our exorcism from that suffering. So the diva becomes a kind of conduit for all of that. And I think the same is true in disco. Donna Summer becomes a kind of conduit for gay men and women to experience their own version of liberated fabulousness through Mm. her. I love the idea of them as the conduit for both suffering pain on like an operatic scale and also like glamour and lavishness and elegance and beauty. It's really a 
I think, and it should be its own full podcast at some point, just a very beautiful relationship between artist and community that is so rich and so multifaceted and has so many different twists and turns throughout popular music history, but ultimately comes back to some of the same values. And I'm I'm curious, and this is not related to disco per se, but I'm so curious now that we're in a space where Sylvester isn't the only out gay popular musician in the ecosystem. Like there are little Nas X's in the world. There's Troy Sivan's in the world. There's now points where gay men can actually be divas. There's Saucy Santana, whatever. There's people out there where gay men can be the divas. They don't need a cipher. I'm so interested in how that's going to eventually affect pop stardom and affect this relationship. But I definitely feel like, at least in the modern relationship between gay men and pop divas maybe it was the most overtly expressed or the first time that it was overtly made public because i feel like disco of course gay men worshiped judy garland and they worshiped diana ross and the supremes or whatever it was but i feel like somehow disco made the implicit explicit in a way in that relationship in a way that perhaps it hadn't been before because perhaps of these club spaces that allowed it to come into the light in this very specific physical space or something yeah i think that's absolutely true and you know again it was also the fact that you're in a moment in a decade of kind of post stonewall gay liberation right where people are really coming into their own feeling more autonomous feeling more free organizing Mm -hmm. themselves as communities in ways that were not even possible before right you know in part because being gay was always seen as something that was deviant Mm -hmm. or something that couldn't be allowed in mainstream culture and you could be arrested for it or you could you know lose your job etc there were serious repercussions and so as that starts to change the music also starts to change and people's relationship to the music starts to change but I also don't want to over romanticize disco disco for all the Sylvester's that were out there or the Carl Bean on Motown singing I was born this way There was also a lot of coding, right? So like the village people are singing songs like YMCA and Macho Man. And while the in-group knew what those songs <laughs> meant and had no question about it, there were a lot of people who were like, oh, this is a wonderful... Even today, I think, like, isn't Donald Trump using like YMCA? As a, I like, remember hearing thought- <laughs> Macho Man for the first time at a Yankees game, like amongst 25,000 straight men. <laughs> so who like clearly felt like they had no problem singing that song in 1996 or, you know, not a particularly welcoming environment for queer people at that particular moment. So yes, exactly that. It wasn't a completely liberatory space, right? And I think what we're seeing now with artists like Lil Nas X, I think also we're not in a totally liberated space either. But, you know, it it certainly represented a significant step forward. Mm -hmm. And you could also argue that the kinds of figures in disco that we did see, people like Sylvester, we don't really even have a figure exactly like that today in certain kinds of ways, right? Like there's someone like a Lil Nas X is probably the closest, but there's certain kinds of limitations that we still have in contemporary popular Mm -hmm. music that some of those figures from that time represented something different. I feel like a figure like Lizzo today is really repping hard for a plus size woman and doing it brilliantly. But it's amazing that we're still having that conversation 40 something years after Two Tons of Fun and all of those other artists. Strange. Yeah.
So in terms of the peak years of disco, 76, 77, 78, 79-ish is what you were laying out for us. What do you see as kind of the major songs, major moments? You talked about Saturday Night Fever. What are the highlights of that era that if someone needs a broad strokes understanding of what were the big moments of the peak, peak disco era, what would you say they were? I mean, I think 75, if you look at Van McCoy and The Hustle, Mm. that track is incredible and just a reminder of how important dance floors were for bringing people together and aggregating people and common experience and so this idea of everybody doing the hustle or the electric slide I think that's incredibly important Definitely Saturday Night Fever in 1970, end of 77, early 78 is a big moment. I think it's an incredible record, by the way. And I think, yes. wow, those songs on that record are just are awesome. Nothing but hits. It's crazy. I mean, you should be dancing and mm. staying alive and Night Fever. You know, I understand also the controversy, which is, I think, absolutely fair and relevant as well. Being that they are white people that essentially became the faces of disco at that moment, what is essentially a black queer genre. Yeah, these are not artists who are like disco artists. They're not even funk artists. They're not even R&B artists. Right. Right. They're like pop artists or, you know, their music that they made might have been related to soft rock or whatever else. And Mm. they're Aravis. They're coming into disco music and then they're adopting the style almost as if they're putting on a jacket, right? Right? It's like a fashion and they're trying it on and they're exploiting it commercially. And then when they're done, they have an exit. They can leave. The Miley Cyruses of their era is what you're saying. <laughs> you said that. I didn't say that. But, yes. <laughs> but absolutely. I mean, it's not, you know, BGs, I think they are incredible songwriters and producers. So they offered a kind of competence in the, in the context of disco. Mm. But that doesn't go for everybody. I mean, I think George Clinton once said, you know, it was like people phoning in a beat, right? It was like everybody was doing it. Everybody mm. was trying it. It was yeah. really the ubiquitous music that you had to do. And so you have Pink Floyd doing disco with another brick in the wall. You have Rod Stewart doing it with Do You Think I'm Sexy? You have the Rolling Stones doing it with Mm. Missy. Everybody, you could probably, you know, Chicago and Street Player and the Kinks are doing it. And so there was a lot of bad stuff too, right? It wasn't all good. (laughs) I think that's the issue. People saw it as co-optation. Yet another example of white straight co-optation of a black, people of color dominated genre. And of course the Bee Gees, it it wasn't like they just tried on this music. They sold more records than anybody else ever in the history of them, you know, so that's part of the issue too. It reminds me also a little bit of like Eminem and there's so many examples of this, I guess. Vanilla Ice, Eminem, you could just, the Mm -hmm. list goes on and Mm -hmm. on and on. But I would say that record, Blondie Heart of Glass, 78. Sylvester, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. Got to be real, Cheryl Lynn, one Mm. of the classics of that era. (laughs) 
And then, you know, you get to 79 and you've got Ladies Night, Cool and the Gang. But I would just also add Michael Jackson's Off the Wall as a disco record, in my opinion. And that came out toward the end of 1979. It's just an incredible album. And to me, in, in some ways, a kind of zenith of the entire genre. <laughs> You know what's so fascinating to me in thinking about disco, and I know that this has been talked about quite a bit, but it feels like three of the definitive disco albums, Donna Summer's Bad Girls, Michael Jackson's Off the Wall, and Diana Ross's self-titled record, three superlative disco records, all kind of came right at the end of the disco movement, like literally as it was crashing to the point where I believe Diana Ross tried to pull back some of the disco elements and remix that record because she was worried that people were souring on the whole thing. I'm always fascinated by that, just weirdness of that all happening right there at the end. And maybe what that tells us about how quick and abrupt the ending came. Yeah, I think it wasn't ready to end. Right. (laughs) And I think the fact that it didn't really end, the name ended, you didn't want to be associated with disco after 1980 for reasons we could talk about, but it continued on in very various guises and forms and a lot of those records that were being made in 1980, 81, 82, they're just basically disco records that aren't being called disco. Right. You know, so there's that, but those records really stand the test of time. They represent kind of quality and excellence that Mm. has sort of been unmatched. You're talking about the maximalist quality of it before. There's so much that goes into making a great disco record and it's really hard to imitate that. And I don't think many people have been able to historically. I think of those three records essentially as the proto-modern pop albums, like in terms of creating an era or creating a body of work that's cohesive in that way. That's sort of the way we think about what Madonna's about to start doing, what Janet will start doing with Control and Rhythm Nation, what Michael's going to obviously do with Thriller and Bad. I think of Bad Girls obviously off the wall. Michael obviously is the creator of so many pop tropes that we think of as modern pop stardom. And Diana Ross's record, like these kind of cohesive statements, eras, aesthetics from artists as essentially what created or began to create the ideas of how we think of the modern pop star. So it's interesting really to connect the disco era to this sort of like new wave synth pop era of pop that's about to follow or the industrial funk era of Janet, if you're thinking about Janet, whatever. But like, I do sort of think of those as prototypical. So in thinking about the end of disco, how does this thing crash? What exactly happens? Oh, not the end of disco, sorry. That's not the right way to say it. As you said, disco has lived on and never really ended. But in terms of the way we think about the tightly encompassed five years where disco was the center of everything in pop music, how does that come to an end and why, I guess? So there's a bunch of reasons. Disco... I think runs out of steam musically in some ways Mm -hmm. in terms of innovation. As I was mentioning before, the industry took over disco, right? And it's putting out endless disco records and forcing almost every artist to have a disco moment. And so it is that notion of what George Clinton was saying. It's kind of one beat that just phoned in. It just became the same thing over and over and over. Disco was also really expensive to produce, Mm. especially during this sort of downturn music economy 
of the early 1980s, mm. late 1970s, early 80s. You had to hire string sections and you had to have orchestrators and arrangers and large bands and Latin percussion and mm. two electronic guitars. You know, it's like <laughs> it was a lot. Mm-hmm. And so very expensive. So disco didn't just die. Also, you know, those big funk bands, right, also mm. kind of went away by the early 80s. And we started focusing more on individual superstars, or at least the industry started focusing on individual superstars rather than big, huge bands. But let's face it, the main reason that disco, its life was curtailed is because it was canceled. Mm-hmm. It was canceled. <laughs> I mean, we didn't use that term then, but that's what it was. Right. <laughs> let's take it back. Right. There was an organized campaign to take disco down, the Disco Sucks movement that happened in Comiskey Park in Chicago in July 1979. And for those who don't know, basically, it was Disco Demolition Night. Mm. And so during this night, which was supposed to be a game between Chicago White Sox and the Detroit Tigers, millions of fans came to the stadium, brought their disco records, put them in the center of the field. And the idea was that you were going to burn these disco records. And all of this was related to this backlash that had been happening in the culture, this fear that disco was replacing rock music. It had actually replaced rock music, but disco was replacing it in a way that was also intending for white people to be replaced and to be marginalized. Mm. Because a genre that had centered the voices and the sounds and the experiences of LGBTQ plus people of color and women were... Where was the place for white straight men in that pantheon, right? You couldn't just energy walk up going and, on here, it seems like. It was early manga. It was, <laughs> I mean, you know, it was, and uh, it's been named and claimed, right? The Disco Sucks movement, but also the New York Times writer, Khalifa Sané, you know, came up with this idea of rockism. That's mm. really what was happening. It was this idea that rock is the true, authentic music, sure. and everything else is secondary. And of course, there are all these fears about race and gender and sexuality mm-hmm. that that are embedded into that. And that's really what it was. And it was canceled because not only was there this organized movement to crush disco, literally, physically, but also, you know, just in every way. But the radio stations stopped playing disco, labels stopped signing disco, the main disco record labels like Casablanca and others went under. They started focusing on reggae and punk music and new wave and other styles of music. And you either had to adapt or you were done. You were Mm. gone. That was it. So that's really why disco ended. I don't think the public ever soured Mm -hmm. who was into disco. I don't think they necessarily soured on disco. I think, again, if you look at all of those post-disco records that are being made in the 80s, whether you're talking about Stephanie Mills' Never Knew Love Like This Before or Patrick Cowley's records coming out of San Francisco or Change doing The Glow of Love or even like Madonna, right, by like 83, 84. Those are just like warmed over disco records. Working with Niall Rogers himself on Like a Virgin. Yeah, absolutely. And then right before that, working with, you know, Jellybean Benita came out of disco working with Reggie Lucas A lot of people never soured on disco. It's just that it was canceled so egregiously that it had a stink to it. Yes. And people had to move away from it. Right. I think that was the main thing. And people wanted something new and something different. And the 80s demonstrated that new focus. But again, biggest album of the 80s, biggest album of all time by a solo artist, Thriller. The first track is Wanna Be Starting Something that features an interpolation of Manu Dubango's Soul Mucosa, right. which is arguably the first major disco record. 
And isn't it safe to say that Billie Jean is more or less a disco record as well? I mean, four in the floor. Absolutely. Beat, slapping baseline, ornate orchestral production, uh, ultra melodramatic lyricism and performance. <laughs> I think that's a great point. Great point. Yeah. And, you know, Lewis Johnson's playing the bass on that, who's from the Brothers Johnson, produced right. by Quincy Jones, who had those all those classic disco records. So, yeah. yeah, these are what I call warmed over microwave disco tracks, right? Right. Um, they just didn't want to call it that because of the associations. Mm -hmm. But I think that's why what Beyonce is doing in this moment is so important. Because not only is she releasing a disco-themed album in the midst of these don't-say-gay political initiatives, sure, sure. but she's also naming and claiming the roots of disco, right? And really saying, you know, we need to claim not just the sound of disco, but the community that organized around disco. That's incredibly important. Oh my God. I mean, it's what makes this record so deeply meaningful. It's so fascinating to watch her like put these drag queens and Kevin Aviads and all of these amazing foundational members of not just the disco community, but of the dance community of dance music in general, many of whom are queer and black right front and center, like making that very explicit. If she didn't do that, she would have been in deep shit. That was a really smart idea on her part, <laughs> I have to say. Obviously, Beyonce doesn't miss any details, so I'm not surprised. So you sort of said disco's never really gone away, obviously. We were talking about records very soon after that that are definitional to the early 80s, including Madonna's first couple of records, obviously Michael's work with Quincy. What are some of the major sort of disco revivals, just broad strokes that have happened over the next 40 years after this moment? What do you see as kind of the major points where disco has come back? Well, well, let's face it, hip-hop was built on disco. Sure. You know, when you look at a song like Rapper's Delight by Sugar Hill Gang, which is arguably one of the most famous songs in the history of hip-hop music, mm -hmm. you know, it's built on, literally built on the instrumental track of Good Times by Chic. Sure. I said a hip so hip-hop was built on disco, although I think in some ways tried to marginalize its relationship to disco, but it's right there and keeps showing up. Mm -hmm. House music, another music that emerges out of black and brown queer communities in the 80s, that's built on disco and hip-hop innovations. And then you get to the 90s and 2000s and Daft Punk, mm -hmm. Kylie Minogue. I think a little bit about Bloghouse and all of that kind of indie music, Chromeo, and like even like LCD totally. sound system and all of these people oh, that were paying yeah. homage to disco. No question. Yeah. No question. And then, like, of course, talking about, like, new disco, disco revival of the 90s, Jamiroquai. Dance. 
and you know Madonna, mm-hmm. Robin, mm-hmm. Britney Spears, Carly um, Rae you know, Jepsen, every single one. Absolutely, and mm-hmm. then all the way up to this contemporary. So I, I, you know, I again, I think it never died. It just kept yeah. having all of these different guises, mm-hmm. if we can say that, you know, mm-hmm. and just kept showing up over and over and over. And you know, even in the this contemporary neo disco moment, there's so many artists who have been drawing on the rich history of black and brown mm-hmm. dance music, discotheque culture. You know, whether you're talking about, again, like somebody like a Robin or a Dua Lipa or, you know, Ava Max, mm-hmm. you know, they're all drawing from the same well. I just think Beyonce did it in a way that feels, and I, I say this not in a pejorative way, it feels studied. Yes, but studied in such a way that it reveals and illuminates the interconnected history of all of these genres and styles of black dance music. And she ends, of course, the album with the I Feel Love interpolation Mm. uh, on Summer Renaissance. And so, you know, she knows exactly what she's doing. She's giving you the greatest musical book report of all time. (laughs) Truly. I think it's always been there. It's always been around. And, you know, there are just moments where it surges to the forefront more than others. And finally, we're in a moment where we're actually thinking of it as more than just sound and more than just music, but music that emerges out of community experience. Mm -hmm. So my last question for you is, I think a lot of people know the sort of big disco hits that we all could name off the top of our heads, like I'm Coming Out and Upside Down and Don't Leave Me This Way and I Will Survive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I was hoping maybe you could leave the audience with a handful of recommendations for disco songs that are maybe less known to the general public, but that like definitely feel like some of your favorites or that people should know about. Okay, so I'm going to do some relatively obscure ones that disco connoisseurs may know, but Mm -hmm. other folks probably won't. And so... I encourage some shazamming and mm-hmm. <laughs> going to the, the streaming service to look for some of these. The first, I would say, one of my favorite songs on a dance floor, Bad For Me by Dee Dee Bridgewater. Mm-hmm. So this came out in 1979. Dee Dee Bridgewater, Broadway actress, was in The Wiz, jazz singer, now considered one of the legendary jazz singers. But in 79, she was doing disco. And this track was produced by George Duke, the legendary R&B and funk artist. And the reason I love this track so much is because it is fire. Like, it just cooks. <laughs> and it, the minute it starts, it, like, compels me to a dance floor to want to dance. And the tempo is also not fixed. So in other words, disco was played by actual live drummers mm-hmm. who didn't always play in time. Today we have digital production so you can quantize beats and make everything exact. Then you were playing by feeling. And this is one of those tracks that just rides on good, good mm-hmm. feeling. Mm-hmm. Love that. Okay. Okay. My second track would be Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Inner Life. So that came out in 1981. It's a cover of the legendary Diana Ross track that was written by Ashford and Simpson. And this is performed by Inner Life, as I mentioned. Who's, it's a studio group produced by the legendary disco pioneer Patrick Adams, who recently just passed away. And fronting this group is the legendary diva Jocelyn Brown, Mm. one of the biggest battleship voice divas we've (laughs) ever had in the context of pop music. And this track is just one of the most ornate, 
opulent, over-the-top arrangements in the history of disco music. Technically, it's 81, so it's post-disco, but it sounds like nothing else. It's incredible. And the arrangement, I think, by Patrick Adams should be studied in music schools, just like we study the Beatles and everybody else. I'm going to go for another Ashford and Simpson track, Bourgie Great. Bourgie, mm-hmm. or Bougie Bougie. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go for, there's been a bunch of covers of this song, but I'm going to go for the 1979 cover by John Davis and the Monster Orchestra. Okay. Most people do not know who John Davis is, no. but he was <laughs> he was an arranger who did a lot of early work on Philly International, mm. arranging strings and all kinds of other stuff. And so he put this band together. They had four albums, I think four albums. This one came out on their fourth album. And as I mentioned, it's a cover of Ashford and Simpson's song, which Gladys Knight had covered. The instrumental version of it by Ashford and Simpson is incredibly popular in nightclubs. Larry Levan, it was one of his favorites. He would always start the evening by playing Bougie Bougie. Mm. And this version of it, I think is the best one, has incredible background singers. And I also think Ashford and Simpson are also singing on this. And again, this is one of those tracks that, I mean, the lyrics are amazing. And I think it also relates to this idea of what Barry White once said about disco. He said, disco made the consumer beautiful. Mm, Oh my God, that's amazing. Isn't it amazing? Yes. Before the genre became, as he says, raped and defiled, Mm. he said it made the consumer beautiful. Mm. And I love the way that he uses the word consumer too. But Bougie Bougie is one of those songs to me that is all about beauty and making you feel beautiful and fabulous and about the upward mobility that is disco. It's an incredible track. So maybe as my last question, is there a song that you feel like is the ultimate prototypical disco song? Could be something people know, could be something whatever, but just one to you, like when you hear it, you just are like, this is what disco is supposed to be. I'm going to go with 1978 La Freak by Chic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's no song there. like that. And, you know, there's a whole story that goes on about how he came up with the name for that while he was waiting to get into Studio 54 and he wasn't allowed in and he said a curse word and then they changed <laughs> the curse word to Le Freak. <laughs> but it's just that rev up, ah, oh, freak out. You know, yeah. that to me, the minute you hear that, first of all, you're seduced onto a dance floor. You're like, let me find a dance floor as yes. soon as that happens. And then it's just an electrifying track that mm-hmm. however many years later, however many decades later, it never fails to ignite any party pure joy pure joy oh i love that song all right jason king thank you so so much for being on the show today this was a delight as is disco music so really former content here love that thank you so much for being on the show happy to be here louis thank you so much for having me have you heard about the new dance craze listen to us i'm sure you'll be amazed Sure they can be done.